since it is Reformation Sunday, I thought it might be advantageous for us to consider the preaching of John Calvin, because the Reformation was really fueled uh, as a preaching revolution. And oftentimes when we think about John Calvin or Martin Luther, we think of them first and foremost as theologians, as writers, because we are so accustomed to reading the things that we uh, gratefully have in print from all the reformers. And yet they were first and foremost pastors and preachers, and the Reformation was not, um, uh, was not exclusively fueled by the printing press and the publications of the reformers. It was principally fueled under the preaching of God's word. And so I want us to consider in the short time we have together just briefly a survey of Calvin's preaching. And I want to read a number of quotes from scholars who have studied this. So bear with me if there are a lot of quotes in this talk, but I think it'll be helpful for us as we get a quick survey of the preaching of John Calvin, specifically in Geneva. Let me pray for us, and then I'm going to read a portion of scripture from 2 Timothy 4 to us this morning. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the Lord's Day. We thank you that you have appointed the ministry of your word for the edification of your church. We thank you that you are committed to sending out your word in triumph and that uh, the foolishness of the message preached is your power unto salvation for those who believe. We pray this morning that you would bless your word as we sit under it. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be exalted. We pray that above all else, we would hear your voice clearly as of the good shepherd and that you would shepherd our souls and that you would lead, lead us to green pastures that you would lead us beside still waters, that you would give us that rest that you have promised to those who will come to you and who will freely take and drink of the living waters that you offer us. Lord Jesus, would you please bless our time together? And we pray that you would be glorified together with your Father and your Spirit. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Second uh, Timothy 4, the Apostle Paul writing to his young protege says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, enduring suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. It's interesting, twice in the pastoral letters that Paul writes to Timothy, he tells them that there's a time coming when people are not going to want the truth. Um, that time is in the first century. He's not just thinking down a corridor of chronological history to some period. Well in the future, he's thinking about the time immediately after the apostolic age is coming to a close and there's no more apostles. And, and he's giving Timothy everything that Timothy's going to need and everything that pastors are going to need when there are no more apostles to turn to for guidance and counsel. And he's saying in that period when there are no more apostles, people are not going to want to hear the truth, and so the remedy, as Sinclair Ferguson says, the remedy 
uh, to men and women not wanting the truth is to preach the truth. I think that's interesting. When people don't want to hear the truth, Paul says, here's the remedy. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Rebuke, exhort, reprove with all long suffering and teaching. Um, I think the reformers understood this as we celebrate the Reformation again this year in this special time of celebration of uh, Martin Luther's ministry in particular. But what the reformers understood was that they needed a resurgence of the pure preaching of the word. Um, expository preaching really began um, uh, in the Reformation after so many years ha of having been lost. Now, if you go back to the early church, Chrysostom, the early church fathers, they did expository preaching. Uh, they preached book by book, text by text. And then over time, that um, really beloved and important practice was lost until Martin Bucer. And Martin Bucer preached um, what is considered the first expository series in the Reformation on the Gospel of Matthew. And then all the reformers committed themselves to that. And I want us to consider this morning, especially John Calvin, as a preacher. As I noted already, Calvin is often thought of um, mistakenly, first and foremost, as a theologian, academic scholar of the Reformation. He is not that, first and foremost. He is pastor and he is preacher. And um, uh, Parker, one of Calvin's biographers, said Calvin regarded himself primarily as a biblical expositor. Now, Calvin is going to preach for 25 years with a three-year break in Geneva. That three years is when he is expelled from Geneva. And he goes to Strasbourg, and, and he comes back, and he picks up right where he leaves off. Three years later, that's how committed Calvin is to expository preaching. But for 25 years, Calvin is going to be the model of preaching uh, for the Reformation. Um, I want to read to you what Calvin himself says in his commentaries on Jeremiah and Lamentations. He says, as soon as men depart, even in the smallest degree from God's word, they cannot preach anything but falsehoods, van vanities, impostors, errors, and deceits. That's the foundation for Calvin. If, if I'm going to preach anything, it's going to be God's word. And, and we take that for granted in Reformed churches today, I think. I think we almost become so accustomed to that, we don't understand how much the reformers had to fight to emphasize that against all of the um, extraneous teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, especially at the brink of the Reformation. But, but I think sometimes we become complacent and, and take for granted the fact that the pure preaching of God's word is everything and that we can never depart from that in the smallest degree. Um, Hughes Oliphant Old, one of the leading reform, scholars of reform worship, says, For the reformers, the Lord's word and the Lord's supper were the center of the Lord's day. So if you want to understand what they did on Sunday in Geneva, it was the preaching of the word and it was the Lord's supper. That was, that, those were the centerpieces together of the Lord's day. The Lord's word, the Lord's supper on the Lord's day. Now, Calvin, over those 25 years, is going to preach through a lot of books, and thankfully we have um, all of the books that Calvin preached through recorded for us because Calvin had um, hired a man named Dennis uh, Ragunier 
to transcribe his sermons. Now, Calvin preached without notes. He was an expository preacher. He had asthma. And so one writer has said he could imagine uh, Ragunier sitting there trying to write as fast as he could as Calvin caught his breath, his asthmatic breath, while he preached. Um, and, and thankfully, Calvin paid uh, Denis Ragunier to take down every word, um, every word that he preached uh, from the time when he was hired in 1549 till Calvin uh, closed his ministry in 1564. Now, here's the list of books in sequence um, in, in chronological Old Testament and New Testament sequence that Calvin preached through that we know of and, and many of which we have those transcriptions of today. He preached through Genesis, Deuteronomy, Job, Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentation, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Zephaniah. So you get a sense he preached a large portion of the Old Testament. And then for the New, he preached the Synoptic Gospels, Acts, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus. And then he preached the latter part of Joel, Nahum, and the first four chapters of Daniel. Now, some of you know Calvin never preached through the book of Revelation and said he intentionally avoided the book of Revelation. He also never preached through the Song of Solomon. Um, and yet it's interesting, uh, Calvin's notes, what we believe would be his exposition of the Song of Solomon, are essentially found in the notes in the Geneva Bible. So it wasn't, it wasn't as if he avoided any teaching on it, but that he was uh, intent on not preaching either of those books expositionally because I think he was not quite sure of his own reading of them. Now, um, there were 48 bound manuscripts of Calvin's sermons, and this is fascinating. In 1613, those were bound and they were committed to the library in Geneva for keeping. And in 1805, they were sold off by weight, by how much the book weighed, to booksellers throughout England, and many of them were never recovered. There was an attempt to buy them back in the 19th century, and there are many of those original 48 volumes that are lost. I like to envision them in some attic in the countryside of England somewhere now. Somebody brought them over from Geneva because that's where most of the book buyers were, and they're tucked away to this day in some attic in England. Who knows? Um, but we do have a lot of his sermons in print. Uh, Banner of Truth has done an excellent service to us. We have his sermons on Genesis. I would highly recommend two volumes translated by um, a man named Roy. His last name is Roy. Um, uh, two volumes of Calvin's sermons on Genesis. They're excellent. His volume on Ephesians is outstanding. You can get that from the Banner of Truth. And the volume on Ephesians has one of the most valuable prefaces of Calvin's preaching that you'll find anywhere. So I also recommend reading the preface to his sermons on Ephesians. So important were Calvin's sermons on Ephesians that John Knox, who had sat under those sermons when he was in Geneva, which is a really exciting thought to think of the father of Presbyterianism having himself personally sat under the preaching of John Calvin 
and, and then carrying those things he learned and heard as Calvin preached through that great letter of Paul to the church in Ephesus back to Scotland and how our heritage follows. When Knox dies, there is a volume of Calvin's sermons on Ephesians next to his bed. That's how valuable those were to Knox and the formation of the Reformation and the, be- and the, the beginning of Presbyterianism coming to the New World through Scotland. <laughs> Um, Calvin's sermons on the first two chapters of Luke, the Banner of Truth have published. Those are outstanding. Any of his sermons on the Incarnation are well worth reading, especially um, as we come to that time of year where we focus, perhaps some of us focus in a special way, on the Incarnation. Um, I would highly recommend those sermons. Now, um, when we think of John Calvin, we often think of the Institutes, and maybe many of you have a set of the institutes in your home. How do the institutes differ from his preaching? Well, they actually differ quite substantially. The institutes were Calvin writing theology primarily for a forthcoming generation of ministers. So they were more academic in nature. They dealt with more academic issues in the text. It's not to say that that educated lay people were not to benefit from his commentaries, but they were written as sort of a pedagogical tool for training all of those ministers in Geneva. There's a great book called Calvin's Company of Pastors, um, and it, it traces out the brotherhood and companionship of the ministers in Geneva and Calvin's role in mentoring and discipling them and a lot of the, the problems that they had um, trying to train up a generation of ministers at an era when you have no Protestant heritage and trying to train uh, people who are themselves fledgling believers and don't know anything theologically. They don't have a John Calvin to read that full body of his writing. They have John Calvin in person trying to build them up and teach them. And so he writes the Institutes for them. His preaching, by way of contrast, was more for the people. And you'll notice this if you read Calvin's commentary on Genesis and compared it with his sermons on Genesis, there's, there's a, a, quite a noticeable difference. It's not that his, his sermons don't contain the same expositions, the same teaching of the text, but they are far more simple and they're far more clear and they're far more applicatory to the congregants than what you find in his commentaries on Genesis. Now, um, Calvin's style in preaching also changed. He uh, preached from uh, the the late 1530s through um, the time when he hired Denis Regunier in, in 1549, and his preaching actually underwent a shift after hiring someone to transcribe his sermons, and, and that makes sense. Before that, he is preaching expositorily. People are receiving it. He probably doesn't get much critique from the people because he is the one doing the hard work um, for people who have never sat under a ministry like this. But as he begins to read his own sermons and the transcriptions of them, uh, it's, it's noted, and Richard Moeller points this out, that there is a transition from the unrecorded sermons that he preached to the recorded preaching that may have led Calvin, he says, to meditate on his style of exposition. In a letter of 1549, Calvin criticizes Farrell. Now remember, Farrell is his mentor who brings him to Geneva. He's the guy that 
essentially says, if you don't come, I'm going to pray imprecatories against you. And, and scares Calvin into coming to Geneva. And then who is exiled with Calvin um, in, uh, I believe it's 1539, he's exiled, comes back in 1541. He's exiled with Calvin in Geneva because the city council um, says that ministers don't have a right to tell the, who is excommunicated, who is withheld from the table. But basically, the government took church discipline into their own hands, and Calvin refused to administer the supper because the government said anybody who comes should be able to take, no matter where they are spiritually. Calvin and Farrell are, are they're excommunicated. They're driven out of the city and exiled together. But in, it's interesting, in, in 1549, Calvin criticizes Farrell for having, quote, an involved and tedious style. And, Muller says, Calvin then comments, perhaps my style in the meantime is over-concise. It's too simple. So it's interesting. Calvin is beginning the practice of homiletical uh, preaching critique. He's becoming a professor of preaching, critiquing his own sermons and those of others. And what Calvin is always doing, and this is very interesting and very important, he's always thinking, what do the people need the most? Um, you know, in our day, there are two extremes that I think are pretty clear and evident to all. Either ministers, and the better part of pastors, and maybe even in churches like this, they water down the word, they want to keep it as basic and simple as possible so that nobody ever grows, because you don't ever learn anything, but it keeps people coming, and it really caters to people who don't want to be under the ministry of the word, and so there is a watering down, or there is a sort of overly academic preaching where ministers are wearing their sort of academic prowess on their sleeve and trying to impress people instead of being faithful to minister to the needs of the people. Calvin doesn't fall into either of those traps, and clearly he could have fallen into the academic trap if he had not been more self-scrutinizing. But Calvin, and I want to read something to you, Calvin understands the danger of this. Um, Calvin, in his, in his comments on 1 Corinthians 3.2, explains that a minister must accommodate, I want you to listen to this, accommodate to the capacity of those he, have, he has undertaken to instruct. Now listen to this. Calvin says, Christ is at once milk to babes and strong meat to those who are of full age. He's... The, he's Picking up in the language of Hebrews 5, 13 and 14. Christ is at the same time milk to babes and strong meat. Notice that Christ is the center of preaching for Calvin. Christ is the milk. Christ is also the strong meat for those who are full age. The same truth of the gospel is administered to both, but so as to suit their capacity. So Calvin understood not everybody that he was preaching to was going to be able to get the deep and rich, profound truths of scripture, that there were some that needed to be brought along. He was a pastor at heart. And yet, Calvin's not going to refuse to feed those who are of full age with the meat of the word. Calvin says, hence, it is the part of a wise teacher to accommodate himself to the capacity of those whom he has undertaken to instruct, so that in dealing with the weak and ignorant, 
He begins with first principles and does not go higher than they are able to follow. You really see something of this in Calvin's preaching. There are times when I have read sermons that Calvin preached on Genesis when I was preaching on Genesis, and I wanted him to say more, and I wanted him to go deeper. But there was a, there was a breaking down of truths and a simplifying of it, I think because Calvin understood that that's what his people needed at that time. Where when you read his sermons on Ephesians, there, there is considerably more doctrinal depth and instruction than you often find in his sermons on Genesis. I think Calvin is accommodating himself. He knew his congregation. He knew what they needed at any given time. Now, um, Calvin stopped preaching on Easter Day of 1538. Remember, he is exiled with Pharaoh. And in September of 1541, he steps back in the pulpit in Geneva, where, according to Parker, he went on to the next verse as if it was only the following day. That's how committed Calvin was. He comes right back three years later as if he hasn't missed a beat. That's a really awesome church historical moment. Um, Parker goes on to say the following July, he was reporting the state of things to Farrell. Four ministers had been elected and would prove suitable enough when they had more practice. The one best educated, however, had a poor delivery and confused ideas. This meant that Calvin had to increase his own preaching. Now, sometimes you'll hear that Calvin preached 10 times a week. I don't know if you've ever heard that. That's true. There was a period of his ministry, a short period, where he preached up to 10 times a week, which is astonishing. And, and these are not just 10 lazy sermons. I mean, imagine, kids, you had to write 10 book reports. I'm sure the, like, 6th through 10th would be terrible at the end of the week if you had to write 10 book reports a week. Just wanting to get it done. These were all going to be excellent expositions of scripture. But it wore Calvin out, and it broke his health down. It was a short period of time. He only did that, Parker notes, because he was trying to build up young ministers who didn't yet know how to preach. And he knew the only way they were going to learn is if he modeled it, and then they went and did it. Um, Parker says, those who want to make progress, Calvin wrote, also wish me to preach more frequently. I've already started to do so and shall continue until the others have become more acceptable to the people. Now, you'll find in Calvin's uh, preface, in the preface to Calvin's sermons on Ephesians, um, a uh, breaking down of his preaching schedule during this short period where he's training all these ministers. I'm going to read this to you out of the preface. Prior to 1549, there were three weekday sermons at five in the evening. So people are getting off work. There were three weekday sermons at 5 p.m. And three Sunday services, one at daybreak, another at nine, and the last at three. After that date, the number was increased to one daily sermon. And it was thereafter Calvin's constant practice, unless hindered by illness or by occasional abs absence, to preach at nine and three each Sunday and alternate weeks to give one sermon each weekday. Thus, he commonly preached no less than 10 times a week to the same congregation. Now, I, I don't think any congregation, doesn't matter how reformed they are, wants 10 sermons a week. I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're sitting there and you're saying, 
I, I would. No, you wouldn't. That's a lot of preaching. But, but it, it shows us how seriously Calvin took preaching in the Reformation. It was absolutely central. And I believe God blessed the preaching of Calvin to fuel the Reformation and Luther and Bucer and the many other reformers there were because they held it to be the centerpiece. This is God speaking. This is God instructing his people. This is the truth that shall set you free. Um, now, very quickly, Calvin had a very basic progression in his preaching. Uh, Zachman, another one of uh, Calvin's modern scholars, uh, notes that Calvin had a three-step progression to each of his sermons. The first was to show the meaning and intention that, if he's preaching through Paul, that Paul had in the words of the epistles. It was just a straightforward exposition. What does Paul mean when he says this? The second was to reveal in his exposition that meaning in order that the people would keep it in their mind and retain it on their hearts. Now, one of the frustrations, maybe if you read Calvin's sermons, is he's sort of repetitive. I found that to be frustrating at times. I want him to say more. I want him to go on and get through this and give me something else. But what Calvin's doing is what Zachman's saying. He is making sure the people are able to not only hear this, but keep it in their minds and their hearts. And so he is he's a bit redundant in his applications. He's always sort of um, showing the other side of what he's already said so that the people come away remembering this. And then third, Zachman says, Calvin sought to apply the doctrine to the use, edification, and instruction of the congregation so that they might profit from the doctrine by putting it into practice in their lives. And, and there is a heavy focus on application in Calvin. Now, it has been said, and I'll, I'll leave you with this thought, that Calvin wed doctrine and application so closely that his doctrine was applicatory and his application was doctrinal, so that at times it almost seems indistinguishable. I'm not sure that's a great model, because the Apostle Paul gives us indicatives, doctrinal facts of Christianity, and imperatives in almost all of his letters, a very clear distinction, the indicative being the foundation, the imperative flowing out from it. Sinclair Ferguson says, our indicatives have to be weighty enough to hold the imperatives. So if there's one criticism I would raise of Calvin is that it's not always sufficiently clear where the doctrine ends and the application begins. And yet what is commendable about Calvin's preaching is that he is always trying to bring it down to the everyday lives of his people so that they would understand, as the Puritans would do after him, that they would be uh, experientially applicable sermons and not just sort of theological trees. Um, when Calvin ended his very last exposition in January 1564, he said, and I love this, think about all the books he's preached over 25 years in Geneva. And these are Calvin's closing words on his own preaching ministry. I know that the matter has not been treated as well as they deserve. Isn't that sweet? He said, my brethren, however, to whom God has given his grace will fill up my shortage 
for which I asked them. So he is saying, I know I could have done it better, but I know that God is going to fill up where I've lacked, and I've asked him to do that. That's a really beautiful thought to end the preaching ministry of John Calvin.